Welcome to episode 285. It is Friday, October 16th. We're not keeping much of a schedule right now, but we told you we're not going away. So we're back at it, ready to talk some LCS and the LDSs that we just saw. I'm Paul Spore, joined as always in the middle of the week by Eno Saris. Eno, how's it going, man? It's going well. You know, I think uh, what we're probably going to do is do just a little bit of uh, baseball fantasy, slanted baseball talk when it comes to the playoffs. And then um, I liked your idea of maybe bringing in some interviews, some industry fantasy heads, uh, just talk to them about what they learned about the past season, uh, what they're up to. Uh, I know Paul and I will be in Arizona um, for a fall league session, so we might get some interviews in there. Um, so it'll be uh, a hodgepodge, you could say, um, of uh, a, a potpourri yes. uh, of, uh, of of different smattering of podcasts, you know, for the rest of this season. And I think early next season, we'll try to get going early enough that you get the jump on everybody, but not so early that you're still watching football. So uh, we'll we'll get in there uh, early next season and and start previews, and that's um, that's a lot easier than. Um, you know, spending this whole time because on on the site we're going to be reviewing the season, mm-hmm. um, but I think it might get tedious to in a podcast form to review and then switch over to preview and be talking about the same players. So um, we're going to try and, and and make our way through the end of the year, and then um, you know maybe I'll do a podcast from the winter meetings, and we'll oh, talk about nice. you know things that are happening there, um, and uh, and then you know Arizona Fall League and. So we'll we'll find a way to like uh, to to be kind of current as much as possible during the winter, and then we'll switch over to preview uh, in the early season. And then we might even switch over early to like the two podcast session, like in in early February or something, so you can really get you know a lot of uh, of prep work in for your drafts and stuff. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be a great off season for the podcast. We'll probably keep kind of the more disjointed scheduling for about maybe another month. I'd say till about mid November. When we really settle into the off season, we'll get more of a schedule going. Like you said, interviews from outside. Jason's obviously going to be there in uh, in Arizona. So honestly, a three man pod live has to happen. Uh, we'll That's get right. that done. We will talk to some other guys out there, but uh, it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Like I said today, we're going to do something similar that Jason and I did the other day, talk about some of the standouts that we saw from the LDS, how they're changing their stock prices uh, in the fantasy market and in the real market. Some of these guys are, are free agents to be, and it is kind of fascinating. You wonder you know, how much how much of an effect does this have on the biggest stage when they're doing well. Sometimes it's overblown. I'll, I'll, I'll freely admit that. Oh, he's making millions. You know, it, It's an easy thing for announcers to say he's making himself millions with that home run. We don't really know if that's the case, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to start with one of the guys that uh, that Jason and I already discussed, but i got to get your thoughts, especially because he's done even more damage uh, since Jason and I talked about him. Unfortunately, his season is done. That's Colby Rasmus. Had a monster playoff for the Astros. Did all he could to keep them going uh, with four home runs, one in the, in the wild card game and then three in that LDS against KC. He was just a monster. He was absolutely on fire. You know, Rasmus has kind of developed into a solid power source, nothing terribly special, kind of a low 20s homers. And then, you know, 
kind of depending on on how much playing time he gets, the runs and the and the RBIs will be in the sixties, fifties area. Not nothing spectacular, but we see this huge run, and it's got everybody's mouths watering about uh, what he could be. But we're talking about a twenty-nine-year-old. Where do you stand on Kobe Rasmus um, as he goes forward into free agency here? You know, it's funny. I think he used to be a more. Uh, I mean, it's, it's it's pretty fairly easy to see if you just sort of glance at him and, and think about what he used to be with the center field defense and uh, the speed. He used to be a more well-rounded player. You know, he used to be a guy who can make a little bit of contact, have some patience, um, you know, steal some bags, uh, hit a couple homers. Um, you know, I, I my prototypical season for him is his second season. Uh, that, in talking about his early career, is the second season with the Cardinals when he had 20 homers, stole 12 bases, uh, had a 276 average, 361 on base. That's when everyone thought this is a five-tooler. Um, you know, he's gonna he's gonna go. Every reason, you know, people talk about uh, uncoachability. Um, people talk about his his father, his relationship with his father as a coach, and um, you know certain things that came out. You know, when he left uh, Cardinals, the Cardinals. But you never know. Sometimes people leak. I feel like teams leak negative information about players um, to explain trades, basically. Um, and so, you know, at the same time, he kind of since then has become more of a of a one tool player, maybe two. I mean, he's got some patience. And he's got some power and he's no longer really a center fielder and he no longer sprays the ball around. And I think he's become very much more risky as, as the seasons have gone on. And now he's kind of like hits everything in the air. hits everything to the pull side and uh, is just selling out for power. Seems like a platoon player at this point. Um, like, I don't think I'm going to be on him in any league if he's not signed. And if he does sign in a power park again, um, I, I feel like even in on-base percentage leagues, he's like a late-round pick, like a power-only pick, basically. Yeah, I, I think you're right about Rasmus. You, you know, <laughs> let's not get overblown about what he can do. Even just isolating his, his right-handed numbers, his numbers against right-handers this year, uh, his triple slash for Rasmus was a 233, 294, 476 with 18 of his, I believe, what, 25 home runs. All so, power. you know, again, just, yeah, kind of selling out for power there. So it's hard to even really see much uh, gain coming anywhere necessarily. Could just be a lot more of the same, which is fine, but not special. So I, I think. Actually- yeah, I think there's actually even a chance for like a kind of spectacular um, uh, downfall. Yeah, because uh, he had a 305 batting average on balls of play this year, and he hit two fly balls for every ground ball. That's uh, that's extreme. I think that's probably a league leader. Um, and, and gonna... Fanned 32 percent of the time as well, so didn't even make a lot of contact. And when he did just in the air basically selling out for power and this is what we got it was a you know a career high 25 homers which is great but the average isn't there you mentioned the OBP can walk a little bit but 314 for the full season not really uh, exciting anybody so yeah even in a another hitter friendly environment it's hard to see where some major breakout comes plus 
How much do you believe in what we saw out of him against lefties this year? It was a total spike, a career-best season that really propped up his overall numbers. He had seven of those home runs, a 252, 364, 471 triple slash against lefties, uh, something, again, he'd never done. A previous high was that season that you mentioned, 2010. He had an 810 against lefties. So th- that's another thing about Rasmus is that, he could sink. Is that is that some of your concern about a sink? Is that uh, he drops back off against lefties yeah, and, and craters the whole number? It's a multifaceted sink because not only is there the, the strikeout rate, the fact that he had uh, the the three hundred five BABIP is 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 an anomaly because he had the second worst ground ball per fly ball, the second most uh, fly ball leaning uh, ground ball per fly ball mix in the, in the majors. He's sitting there with Chris Carter, right? And, you know, you, you could say, okay, well, Lucas Duda was worst uh, or number one in the stat. Yeah, but Lucas Duda actually has uh, an up-the-middle approach. So if you're talking about Babbitt, there's a few things that go in. They go, there's a speed. There's the, your spray, you know, how, how, how well you, you spray the ball around uh, in, in, in a certain left to right and also an up-down, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Lucas Duda's left to right the spray is good. Uh, even if his up-down spray is as bad as Colby Rasmus. But basically what we're saying is Colby Rasmus hits everything in the air and everything along the pull side. Now, you know, maybe he'll have an okay Babbitt because he can he can hit it over the infielders. But if there's any regression in this fly ball rate and there's any more ground balls, those are going straight to defenders, he's going to get shifted, you know. And then if the lefty numbers regress at all, you're talking about a guy who could have like a 250 Babbitt next year. And if he has a 250 Babbitt, he might have like a 199 batting average because, you know, a lot of this stuff looks like the stuff that Aaron Hill went through. And maybe Colby Rasmus has a little bit more you know, natural power than, than Aaron Hill. But if you remember how crazy Aaron Hill's numbers were from year to year, um, I, I see a little bit of risk in, in that, uh, that sort of risk for Colby Rasmus. I mean, all you got to really say is Chris Carter had a 244 Babbitt Almost everything Chris Carter did was was about the same. Brandon Moss uh, uh, had a 285 Babbitt, and 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 he does things very much similar to Colby Rasmus. So that's the type of player you're talking about. You're so talking about a, a Brandon Moss is the high end of, or, or not last year, yeah. Brandon Moss. Um, two years ago, Brandon Moss is kind of the high end of what this profile can deliver. That 30 homer, 87 RBI season with a 256 average. Yeah. That's everything going right, right? Yeah, and I think that for the most part, almost everything went right for Erasmus this year. So uh, you're only looking at the Chris Carter end of things, I think. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point on Rasmus. Let's jump over and talk about our next guy on the list. That's Daniel Murphy, who's uh, also entering free agency. So he's another one of those that has kind of the dual. How's he helping himself in the market and how's he helping himself in the fantasy market? The one big thing about Murphy's season this year is that that speed went away. That's kind of the scary thing about the guys who do the chip-ins everywhere is that uh, it's not a primary focus. So the fact that he was dealing, I believe, with a quad injury, it's easy for him to just shelve stealing. Not a huge part of his game anyway. He's there to hit. They need a hitter's. Two stolen bases in four attempts after 10, 23, and 13 for Murphy. So that really dinged his value. But he did hit for his most power ever. 14 homers was a career high. 73 ribbies was uh, up there. It was actually his second best. And the 281 average was still solid. So still a lot of solid contributions from Murphy. He's exploding in the playoffs with more power as well. Three home runs, including obviously the, the huge one last night. Going to be second and third base eligible next year. Um 17 games at first base. Not that that would really help. You like the second and third base. Daniel Murphy, 
first off, do you think the Mets are going to keep him? If not, where do you think he go? Uh, um, where do you think he goes that could really benefit him? And then, what are your overall uh, thoughts on him for 2016, uh, Daniel Murphy? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that they will keep him. There's there's too many options. Um, you know, with the with the two, Ruben Tejada's resurgence into you know not necessarily excellence, but uh, usability, usefulness. yeah, usefulness. And then Wilmer Flores' bat um, showing just enough. Uh, I think that the easiest thing for them to do cost wise is um, you know let Murphy go, uh, play Tejada at short, uh, play Flores at, at second. And use Dilson Herrera and whatever other pieces they have, uh, Matt Reynolds type guys, uh, to sort of fill in the middle infield. Um, if they're going to spend any money, uh, it's going to be to keep fan favorite Yuan Cespedes, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, um, what do you think Murphy's in, in line to make? It's a question. Uh, one of my Mets buddies and I were, were, were discussing. He made eight mil this year as the end of a, a, a previous deal. You know what? What what kind of contract is he is he looking at? He's going to be 31 to start the contract. Daniel Murphy probably going to get what maybe like a three four year deal, three year maybe. Uh, what kind of what kind of per annum do you think he's going to have? Yeah, I think he'll get offered. Um, you know, it'd be interesting because I think he'll get offered the uh, the qualifying offer. Okay, I was curious and, on that too. I should have asked that because you know I think that the I think a baseline projection for him is around two wins and. Uh, you know, a two-win player is a league average player, and that would be about a $15 million contract. Uh, add a little extra because I think he is well-regarded on the team, or am I wrong on that? No, I, yeah, I think they like him. And also, um, I think there's some benefit to not signing for the year. So, in, in effect, like, you'd almost want to spend a little bit more up front, even if it was, this contract is only, quote-unquote, worth $15 million. You know, if you could get him for seventeen million and not have to sign him on the back end uh, for a few years, you know what I'm saying? It's like mm-hmm. he's probably worth as much as seventeen million next year when you when you sort of talk about a one year contract. So I think they will offer him that. And uh, then you're asking, what will it take to take him away? I think it'll take a contending team that has one hole uh, on the infield, uh, probably at third uh, would be the best fit for him. And um, is willing to give him uh, maybe three for thirty, okay, and three for forty maybe. Uh, those are those are uh, those are those are decent deals that I think would let you know he'd see that he'd get make more money uh, over the life of the contract. He'd have he'd have three year stability. Um, you know, thirty five forty million is not too much of an overpay because you could expect from him over the next three years. You could expect from him. You know, and you know, close to five wins, four to five wins. Sure. So, uh, if you got five wins, it'd be over thirty-five million dollars worth of stuff. So, I mean, he's he's aging well. Uh, I mean, he's stuck in this sort of two to three win thing for five years now, uh, and he is the kind of hitter that um, you know might might age well. I mean, in that you know, you're not depending on that speed, and you're not even depending depending on power. You're kind of just want some line drives and a lot of contact yeah and, just, just uh, great contact put the ball in play and and kind of see what happens you know he goes out there every day it's almost like a giants player you know but uh, i was thinking that but then you said third base and i was doing them that's funny that you said that because that's the first team i thought 
And I'm like, where's he going to play? He got Panic at second. Uh, Crawford obviously at short, not that Murphy would go there. And then Duffy at, at third, right? Is Duffy the long-term solution? Or, or at least the yeah. next year's solution? Yeah, and I think that um, knowing Sabian, I think that they're probably going to try and get an ace. Um, and, you know, if they spend a lot of money, it's going to be an ace and leak. Um, or maybe they get a leak and another you know, second-tier guy. Sure. Uh, I think they're thinking about pitching. And I think the way their season one, it's fair for them to think about pitching one. I heading. totally agree. Um, the Dodgers, I think, are an interesting uh, fit for them. Um, you know, Daniel Murphy uh, and Justin Turner could, could you know, man second and third between them. Uh, you have to wonder how much they want to give Howie Kendrick and how they'll think Howie Kendrick can age. So uh, that's a decision they're looking at. How, um, how comparable are those two in terms of what they should make, Kendrick and Daniel Murphy? Oh, that's a good question. I'd have to let me pull up. Because uh, they Kendrick. do, you know, kind of similar things. With Kendrick, it was never really about power or speed. He was a healthy, low double-digit speed contributor most of the time. This year was just six. Uh, same thing he did in 2013, but other than that, a lot of 14s and 11s sprinkled out there. Same with his power, 10s. A little bit less, little bit less contact. Yeah, a little bit less of, of the contact, a little bit better with the OBP, I believe. But all in all, Higher don't peak. they kind of add out to be a similar, similar players? Yeah, I think you'd probably. I mean, there was a higher peak for uh, Kendrick, and that probably matters a little bit in, in, in uh, projections, but he's also older. Two years so. older, yeah. Yeah, so I think you'd probably just play off, play them off each other a little bit and uh, – and just see who you can get better value on. One year older, uh, pardon me. I don't know, like, uh, you know, the Angels, Freese, he seems like a, Freese seems like a, you know, like a unlikable fit there. I mean, <laughs> not unlikable as a person, but like. No, 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 no not, not, it's not, not a great easy. fit, I think, what you're saying. Be- easily replaced because, I mean. Also, he's a right-hander, so, like, you know, he tends towards being kind of the short end of a platoon and. You might you might uh, just pick up Murphy and and um, oh and didn't they they never or do you think Giovatella is the the solution for them I think they could sign Murphy and that's and the thing say, they could, you know, they could play Murphy could be the primary and either you know those two could Freeze and Giovatella could fill in kind of behind him at those two positions yeah. I think Murphy is still going to be best served as somebody who does still kind of bounce around that's another thing between him and Kendrick Kendrick second base. Murph, you can kind of move around. Of course, it's like that saying, you know, if you if you play several positions, you, you can't really play one all that well. You know, I know that phrase is usually more for uh, quarterbacks in, in the NFL. <laughs> if you got three quarterbacks, you don't have one. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that is kind of Murph. What's that? I think in baseball you're right, and then you know, like you never know what the uh, what the like the Athletics will do. They have, you know, right now they have Danny Valencia at the position, and you know, they they kind of. Uh, need to figure something out. So uh, the Mariners have they got Cano and Seager, so that's set. locked. Although first base, I was gonna say they could put him at first base then. And and you know usually you don't want a guy uh, that that's not the prototypical profile for first base. But neither is Logan Morrison. And I certainly think even with the three years difference, that Murphy's better than Morrison at this point. Yeah, and Morrison's knees, man, are just yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> if that guy's going to get deep into his thirties, just from a body standpoint, and there's not much you can do about that. Some guys just, they, they, they can't hold up and it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, yeah. So maybe Seattle's a decent fit with the first then, piece. Then you have to, then you never count out the, the Mariners to do something. I mean, the Marlins to do something weird. I mean, they, 
they uh, they buy when you think they're going to sell, and they sell when you think they're going to buy. Uh, you know, Justin Boer, D. Gordon, and uh, Martin Prado. You know, Prado's been a super util guy. He's been an outfielder. He's been uh, kind of a Murphy in his career, hasn't he? Maybe yeah. a bit, maybe a little bit better Murphy, like uh, more for his person. peak. Yeah, he's been able to play outfield. Like you cannot put Murphy in the outfield. It just doesn't. His physical skill set does not. Does not. It doesn't fit. translate. All right. Well, we we I think we kind of covered the gamut here on on Daniel Murphy, yeah. and obviously we'll talk about him more when he does sign somewhere. But let's let's jump over to Cespedes, who you who you briefly mentioned there as uh, somebody that if the Mets are gonna. You know, not that these two are going to make the same Murphy and Cespedes, but Cespedes is going to be their first concern. Let's get the money spent there, and then if it doesn't work out, maybe they would circle back around to somebody like a Murphy. Cespedes, since going to the the Mets, has you know he is somebody who is earning millions with with what he's been doing um, because you know. He'd been fine, really good with Detroit. Even the word great, I think you could use, but it wasn't necessarily some electric kind of capturing everyone's attention the way it has been with New York. And part of that, obviously, is the team performance. But he's been amazing. He's been over 100 points better of OPS with the Mets in the regular season. And then kind of, uh, you know, hasn't been exploding in 20 plate appearances for the uh, playoffs, but five hits, two of them bombs. So still delivering the production, even in the small sample. Well, where where do you go with Cespedes, though? Because, first off, do you think he is somebody that a team would sign to be a center fielder? Are they going to move him back to the corners where he spent the bulk of his career, uh, namely left field? Or, um, and, and well, let's start there. Where do you think his, what position is he? Is he just whatever outfield you need, or do you keep him in center or slot him right back into left? Yeah, see, that's why I think that he's not going to necessarily stay with the Mets is because I don't think he's a center fielder. And with Conforto and Granderson, it's just it's not a great fit. Now, maybe they can and, and maybe they can spend that money on another center fielder or maybe Lagaris will get healthy or better or whatever. Um, they'll they'll I, I think they'll spend money, but they don't seem to spend money on this this the scale other than David Wright which makes sense cuz he's a hometown boy ownership supposedly you know uh gave the nudge to open the pockets and stuff so um you know i think uh you know the numbers aren't great for Cespedes and Center they're in fact they're terrible uh they only come in 900 innings so it's a bit of a small sample situation but at the same time most of his teams haven't put him in center and there was a debate about whether or not it was a good idea to do it at all um, with the Mets. So I think that, that there's a bit of a smoke-fire situation there where, like, um, even though I haven't seen him act very poorly, uh, defense is a really hard thing to, to evaluate uh, just watching the game. So, um, you know, just watching a game here, you know, even if you watch, even if you claim that you watch, you know, 100% of all innings, you're not at the games necessarily, so you're not watching him. Yeah, you can't focus in like, on him you only see what the tv will show you so uh you know you're not sure you're not certain about how much he's positioning himself how much they're positioning him where he's positioning himself how good the roots are a lot of times you don't even see the root until they focus on him making the catch so yeah and, and until they stat cast it uh the next day if it was an amazing play and so they I, usually don't stat cast the bad ones they it, i've noticed yeah. that they don't give you the like 
his root percentage was 50% or whatever. I've never seen anything. I want to see those. The guy who took yeah, a 74% really efficient root, <laughs> who made a firm right angle in the midst of tracking down a ball. I want to see that guy. The Odebel Herrera catch. To, yes. To for the, for, for the, the no-no. Uh, for the no-no. I want to see that stat cast. Yes. Man. What was that route efficiency? 9%. <laughs> oh, good job, Odebel. No, uh, I'm with you there on the center field piece with Cespedes. So so we got that taken care of, and, and teams are unlikely to sign him as a center fielder, which makes sense. Now let's talk about the production, because for all the fanfare, and I contribute to it, I Love Yoenna Cespedes as a baseball player, riveted to the TV anytime he's batting, whether it was with Oakland, Boston, or my beloved Tigers, and then again the Mets uh, to end this year. But the production hasn't always been there to kind of merit the hype. In fact, after that electric rookie season, uh, 2013 and 2014 were kind of bland. You know, they were they were RBI infused, so he still rated well when it came to fantasy because obviously that counts. You know that 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 matters. But he wasn't exactly exploding skills-wise. 26 home runs, 22 home runs, poor average, even poorer on base percentage. So we weren't really seeing it. Well, this year, uh, we saw the jump finally at, at, at age 29 from Cespedes, 35 home runs. Another big RBI season to go along with a big run scoring season, being a part of two good offenses because he was there when Detroit was good and then obviously m- helped make the Mets good uh, offensively. 291 average, a lot of good stuff. Still 328 OBP, not knocking anybody's socks off, but at least capable. And then, of course, the big 542 slug. Is this just a spike season in production, or is he going to kind of maybe rest at this 30 home run area for for a couple years? Um, where are you on the production with Cespedes? You know, there's this interesting thing with the exit velocity where we talk about uh, there's a donut hole. There's a, there's a certain part where... Even if you hit the ball hard, if you hit it at a defender, uh, it's out, it's an out. And um, one thing that Cespedes has done with the Mets is hit the ball so hard that he's gone past the donut hole. Uh, he was averaging like about 95 miles an hour on exit velocity, and uh, home runs are usually over 100. So he was he was like averaging almost home run, you know, exit velocity. And once you get up to about 95, 96, what you'll see is you start to have good outcomes no matter what the uh, vertical spray angle was. So no matter how high or low you hit it, if you hit it that hard, you, you start hitting your way into hits. Um, and I think that makes sense because you could do it at a, a, a grounder level that's normally uh, an out, but you hit it so hard that the defender can't get to that space quick enough. Um, so kind of like the hard ground ball yeah, or, that makes you sense. know, or the, you hit that line drive. That's usually, that's often at a defender in the infield, but since you hit it so hard, you know, they either can't get to it or it's just over their head. You know, there's, there's certain, uh, way that he acted that actually led to more hits. So, uh, you know, he hit his way into that, that Babbitt basically, uh, and that and that power uh, was a big part of it. Those are the good things. And another good thing that I like is his power comes on low pitches. So uh, he set himself up to be uh, to drive the pitches that he's going to see from more pitchers. You know, he's he's got that kind of golf swing that leads to oh, yeah. power in today's yeah. game. Um, I, love, I love that swing. But that, by the way, those home runs that that are low, they just golf them and they end up 
often being moonshots and yeah. the ones that you can just admire. Can picture a few of the Cespedes ones in my head right now. I love that factor of his game. I just, you know, could we ever, could, could we legitimately see more? I guess, of course, we can, but. How much in the realm of possibilities is it that he would improve upon this 2015 season for Cespedes? What I don't like is um, that he came to new league and blew up. So, you know, some of this could be scouting reports being slower. Sure. Um, I also uh, don't like that he's never shown really great plate discipline. And, um, and you saw him against Granky. Uh, you know, high fastball. There's a book on him. It's a high fastball. Some guys don't have the ability to, to, to throw a nice high fastball because it's a low ball league. Uh, but for the guys that do have the ability to throw a high fastball, Granky one, two, three him up top. And it was just swing, strike, swing, strike, swing, strike. And you could see that his swing was not set up to hit those. And yet his plate discipline is not good enough to lay off those. So, uh, honestly, I don't think it'll be a great deal on the back end of whoever gets him. I, because, y- you know, like there's going to be a certain amount of defense that will float him. And, but the, the, the base running acumen, the, the sort of b- the speed that he has, he doesn't turn into good outcomes that well. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when I said that the Granderson deal would be good for the Mets, I said, you know, his speed uh, will help him in, on defense and on base paths. And also because he's smart enough to, to make his whatever speed he has, even as it declines, he make it useful. So, he, you know, Granderson's always been a plus in those areas, whereas, uh, you know, Cespedes, even in his peak, has had times when he's been a negative defensively and, you know, a, a scratch base runner. Um, so I, I feel like, you know, as those tools start to decline, uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about his flaws than his strengths. That's a a concern uh, that I would have as well because, you know, both of our favorite teams are are rumored to be eyeballing him. The Tigers very open about, uh, you know, uh, speculation on bringing him back after they initially traded him. And then, of course, he explodes with the Mets. So that's that's all the talk. You know, once he got going and and caught on fire for them, the talk, instead of focusing on the season that was, was, well – how much are the Mets going to pay Cespedes now? So yeah. I think that's going to be really interesting to see, obviously, if the Mets kind of keep going and if he carries them. Uh, it, it'll only get crazier. What kind of contract do you think Cespedes might get? If, you, if you're if you taking your first ballpark at it, what, where, are you, where are you thinking in the in the ballpark for a uh, first Cespedes contract? I think it's going to be a big deal. I think it's going to be, big deal. I think it's gonna be six years. And if it's six years – and, you know, you're baseline projecting him for at least four wins in the first one. Um, how would you do that? You would say four, 3.5, 3, 2.5, 2, 1.5. So he's below average player in the last year. And uh, you got 10 and a half, 12, 13, 15, 16 wins out of him. Um and that would be uh, 42, $115 million. Uh, that's, that's low. I mean, that's too low because 100, you know, $115 million for six years, he's not going to take that. So uh, $130 $140 million? Yeesh. I mean, I get it. I totally get it. I'm like, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't want to give him that really though. No, I, and I understand that too. That's the thing. Like, it's one of those deals where, 
you kind of understand both sides. One, not really wanting to give that kind of money because of what could happen. But then the excitement that could be in those first couple of years to make it quote unquote worth it. So that's going to be a fascinating one to follow. What about, and the last question on Cespedes, well, where's his fantasy stock right now as far as, as far as you would uh, uh, guesstimate it? Because I definitely think that maybe if he's not adding millions to his contract with his Mets performance in the play, in the playoffs, which I think he probably is, but even if you're saying he's not, he's definitely increasing his profile for fantasy um, after that excellent season. He was the seventh best outfielder this year. What round do you think he's going to start being taken in? Let's just, let's just say he he lines up in a in a neutral situation because he's he's excelled in in tougher ballparks before. So I'm not really worried about where he lands. So we'll just say neutral situation. What kind of round? What what round are you looking at Cespedes in next year? Yeah, once once he connects, it, it's it's out of every park. It's 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 like when you when you were talking about Justin uh, Upton going to San Diego. It's like let's not overvalue the park factors because exactly. you know he's a no doubter. He's not he's not a guy who's got eighteen home run power that you know. Uh, we'll needs a, a Yankee cool. Stadium porch to get up to twenty five. No, if he like, connects and he's Charlie Blackman, if he leaves Coors, uh, I might be worried about his home run total. You know, <laughs> bingo. <laughs> but but uh, uh, Justin Upton going to San Diego, you know, Cespedes going wherever. I'm not too worried about. Um, so, but the problem is that I do think there was a little bit of a of a spike in that power. So I would value him as say like a 27, 28 home run guy. It probably means I won't get him. But, uh, you know, 28 homers, five stolen bases, 285 batting average, uh, I doubt ends up being a top 10 outfielder. Um, so if you're drafting him, if you believe in, in everything and you're drafting him as a top 10 outfielder, you're going to get him and I won't. But uh, Yeah, um, I think I'm with you on, uh, on that piece of it. Those are good numbers. I mean, in, in terms of what those numbers mean, I think that those, those are still probably top 15, top 20. I mean, you're going to take guys like Pollock over him because they, you know, they got steals. Um, you know, you're going to take guys uh, that have more power upside, I guess, uh, over him. Um, you might even take like a Billy Hamilton one category guy over him. Uh, but I think, you know, third round, fourth round. Does that sound about right? I, th- I think that is probably right, but I'm I'm kind of with you on the piece of I don't think I'm going to get him because the thing of it is I was mentioning earlier about you know kind of the excitement that that goes with him. A lot of that excitement comes from his exhilarating defense, and 99% of fantasy leagues don't count that, and yet it yeah. still inflates his market value. And so that's that's where it's tough for me with Cespedes. I, I thought he was a little bit undervalued this year, so I'm, I took the plunge in a few leagues, and it paid off. But I think after this big year, and again, if it continues in the playoffs, it could only make it worse, I'm going to be out this year almost regardless unless we get in a league where – we're all kind of of that same mind, and he gets to what I deem a uh, quote-unquote more reasonable level. So Cespedes is going to be a very interesting one to follow all offseason and throughout draft season to kind of see how his value uh, turns. Let's jump over to the AL for a little bit, talk a couple guys over there. Actually, just one guy, then we're going right back to the end now. That's just the way it's happening right now. Uh, Kevin Pillar ended up with a pretty good season. He really did. I certainly didn't really believe it at any point. I know he was out there for his defense, but uh, he really parlayed that playing time into a quality year, 628 plate appearances. He had a you know, solid 278 average, but the 314 on base and the 399 slug aren't special. But you get that much playing time, you can accumulate 12 homers and 25 stolen bases, which is exactly what Pilar did. 
I don't know how skeptical you are compared to me, but I'm still pretty skeptical of this 26-year-old uh, breakout. How are you viewing Kevin Pillar for next year after what was a good season but just feels a little flimsy? You know, when you watch him play defense and you, you, you have to realize – I mean you realize that he's you know, probably going to have a role uh, next year, which is, uh, which is important. Um, you know, what that role will be, you know, if it's going to be a starter or not depends more on the bat. And I think the big step forward for Pilar this year was in plate discipline um, and, uh, and sort of, you know, strikeout rate and walk rate. Um, what's in, the interesting thing for me is that if you look at his uh, uh, plate discipline in the first and second half, it's easier to see that, you know, he had like a 15% strikeout rate in the first half and a 10% strikeout rate in the second half and say, okay, he must have figured out something uh, you know, become more disciplined at the plate. But if you actually look at his uh, reach and swing rates, um, he went from uh, reaching, let's see here, uh, 41% of the time. Um, let me see here. I got 41% of the time in the first half and 41% of the time in the second half. And he went from swinging 52% of the time to 50% in the second half. So it, there's no like real obvious uh, thing that he did better in the second half. He didn't even swing at more pitches in the zone more often. He just made a little more contact. So I guess you could say he was swinging at better pitches because the swing strike rate went from 9 to, to 8. But it's not the kind of thing that... Um, that you would think would fuel this kind of breakout. Here's the thing with Pilar. He had two great months, and everything else was, I mean, probably not even replacement level. Big June, and then a big finish in September, October. Um, accumulated seven of the 12 homers and 13 of the 25 stolen bases. Every, every other month, you know, uh, July was okay, but uh, August... April and May were, were, you know, pretty much trash. So I don't know. You know, I, I understand that uh, months are arbitrary endpoints, but it does kind of stand out that he had two nice hot streaks, but the rest wasn't just kind of middling like something in the 700s with his LPS. It was poor. 603, 715, 494, 694. Those were his OPS totals in those other four months. 911 and 873 in the, uh, the, the June and September for Pilar. So I don't know. This is one that um, if, if, if there is some legitimacy to it, I'm going to miss out because I don't think he's really going to be on my radar at all, save maybe some AL onlys where I'm looking to fill in late. Here's one for you. The Kevins who both play good defense to keep their keep their role. You like Kevin Pillar or Kevin Kiermaier better? Mm, Kiermaier is younger, isn't he? Kiermaier is substantially younger. We're looking at oh no, not substantially. Excuse me, one year. I th I thought Pilar was a little bit older than he was. He's going to be 27 next year. Kiermaier is going to be 26. So we're only talking about a year. Uh, the production this year wasn't terribly different. They both played a ton. Again, because of the defense, 10 yeah, homers and 18 stolen bases for Kiermaier. Those two months that you point out are also the two months, the only two months where he showed any power. And even in the June, that was only okay. You know, he had a 283 batting average, but he had like a .09 ISO. So, um, you know, 
I could definitely see a, a major regression in power if he if he goes back down to sort of like the point oh nine point one hundred, and he only hits like five six homers next year. Uh, but the problem with uh, with making you know regressing him too hard and saying he's not going to be useful. I mean, I think he could be useful in deep leagues, especially if everybody's running from him and, and expecting regression because his defense is going to keep him in there. Ben Revere is terrible. Poor Ben Revere. I know. I don't know how he can't turn those tools into into awesome defense, but he can't. So, um, you know, I think you know, I think they're going to find a way to keep Pilar in there. I think Kim is the same thing. You know, that these are both excellent defenders, probably the two best second center defensive center fielders in baseball right now. Yeah, and uh, so Kiermaier not going anywhere. I don't think. I, I agree with you on that one. Pilar, there's like a more obvious replacement, and the team is kind of a bash their heads in team. So you could see maybe them faking it with Revere in center. They did go get him, you know. Um, he seems like a bad fit in left field, uh, you know, because he doesn't really have the bat for left field and his defense isn't good, that great either. So mm-hmm. uh, there is a little bit more uh, murkiness. So I guess I'll take Kiermaier. He's got the extra year. He doesn't have a Ben Revere around. But I, I think um, while I – like I won't necessarily take him in, in mixed leagues because – if he regresses to like 15 stolen bases and seven and seven homers and like a 260 batting average, he's not going to be a mixed leaguer. But that's still an AL only. Certainly, know? and and I think that's where both of them have value. I've definitely been down on on Pilar in this discussion, but I won't completely ignore him in AL for that big reason that you mentioned. If everybody else does. Again, it becomes a situation where, okay, well, now everyone's saying that he's worthless and, and, and down on him, jump in. This is know, uh, not even just that. It's like his defense will gives him a nice high floor. It's and like that's something even that we they, talked about all year, something that I love talking about. These defensive guys who have the playing time guarantee can become players. values. I like yeah. that. Because like, if you draft them in the, in the early going and then the worst-case scenario happens and they move Revere in to start, they're still going to take Revere out for Pilar in the latter half of games. They're still going to sit Pilar uh, in like I don't know if it's going to be David Price, but in ace games, they you know teams often play their best defensive lineups behind their aces. That makes um, sense. Uh, sit and, Revere, and, you mean? You said sit yeah, Pilar. Yeah. So they'll sit. They'll sit Revere for for Price if they, they sign Price, but sit Revere when Price starts. Um, you know that sort of deal. So you'll you'll still probably get you know I think the worst case scenario for next year. Uh, for Pilar, which this is going to sound bad, especially if you're a mixed leaguer listening, uh, it's probably like 400 plate appearances, 450 plate appearances, five home runs, uh, 260 batting average, and 15 steals. And that's okay. definitely not a mixed leaguer. But no. if you spent like five, six dollars on a guy like that, it's not going to sink your AL only squad. And that's the thing. If you, yeah, get some of those glue guys, get some of those defenders who you know are going to play enough and that way you don't have to worry about trying to replace them because that's obviously one of the hardest parts of yeah. those single leagues Going to the wire. yes exactly so <laughs> even though neither of the of the kevin's uh statistics are really going to jump off um at you especially if you factor in some regression the fact that that the plate appearance column should be the important one for you and both have a good shot at getting a lot i would say kiermaier more so because of the revere factor that you mentioned but I do like uh, both in an AL only league. Let's jump over. Two more guys here. Two guys that, that we've talked about and we've kind of gushed on at different points. And one guy that we keep coming back to, but things kind of keep 
changing or, or, or keep staying great. So I'm going to bring up Stephen Piscotty again. I know I keep asking you to talk about him and, uh, you know, because you, you were very extensive on him early on as somebody that you've studied and have good takes on. The power just continues to surprise me. The seven homers in the regular season were a surprise. We talked about that. He goes out and hits three more in the in the LDS. Granted, small sample, but keeps showing more power than at least I expected. Going to have a tw- he's going to be a 25 year old next year. What is the situation in that St. Louis outfield? Obviously, Jason Hayward uh, is a free agent. I'm not going to say likely gone one way or the other, but a free agent. So there could be spots open. Talking about Gritchick and Piscotty kind of exploded this year. I know Pham did too, but Pham's 27 years old, and it was a much smaller sample than the other two guys. So I think Gritchick and Piscotty are kind of angling to be the center fielder and right fielder with uh, with Holiday. Where do you stand? Let's talk specifically about Piscotty and his 2016 outlook. Yeah, I mean, 256 plate appearances and a 189 ISO, I think, are at 24 years old, um, you know, I think are are good signs. You know, I think um, that's enough of a continuation where you can add that to the 372 plate appearances in AAA with a 203 ISO, and then you can start to look past the 118 ISO he had in AAA in 2014. Um, you know, I think that becomes the outlier. You know, once you have major league, you know, a nice sample of major league of major league at bats, uh, showing power in the in the postseason that you can now add on top of that. So it's another 18 um, uh, plate appearances with three home runs. Another nice thing about the postseason is that he did that against good pitchers. Um, so he wasn't a September call up that just killed all the the um, that killed all the uh, the 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 the, the, the 28th through 35th men. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, so, you know, he did this on the on the spot with the spotlight on him. Uh, he did this where, you know, when you go into a postseason series, it's not it it's not the same as a regular season series in terms of preparation. No matter what level a team does to scout players for the regular season, they do that plus something in the postseason. So, you know, whatever holes Stephen Piscotty had going into these uh, into these games, you know, those teams were all over them as they could be, and yet he, he succeeded. So it's a tiny sample of the 18. I'm not going to talk too much about the 18 uh, postseason ones, but there is there is something special about those that he, he managed to do well, you know, despite everyone, you know, really researching him. Um, and, and despite going up against the best pitchers, you know, they're going to bring in the best reliever they've got that they think matches up with him the best, and yet he still succeeded. So, um, yeah, I think uh, it, was a, it was a good year, a really good year for him. Uh, I've been talking to him since he was at Stanford, so I've been talking to him for four years now. And, uh, you know, he's not necessarily my favorite interview in terms of the most cerebral guy, but he's a cerebral enough that he decided that he needed to change something about his swing last year going into this season and he you know went for power and didn't you know give up a lot of strikeouts and, no, and it, uh, it, it's been impressive for Piscotty like I said Gritchick also broke out so they might not be very aggressive on Hayward thinking that they've kind of got two future guys with their stalwart in holiday um I mean are they ever really aggressive on free agents no exactly um do you think Piscotty can hold right field all year or, or would, uh, because I don't think he plays center, and Gritchick can 
can at least hang center, right? Hang in yeah. center, I should say. I mean, it's, it's you know, Biscay's a righty, so there's always the, the, the more risk with these guys. But um, he, he did well enough that I think that they probably have him in their, in their plans. I, I would agree. Uh, and then the last guy we got to talk about here, again, someone that we've gushed over in the past, didn't quite pan out the way uh, either of us wanted to this year. But I'm I'm kind of a sneaking suspicion that you're going to go right back to the well again in, t- in 2016 <laughs> on Jorge Soler. And how could you not? I'm going to be right there fighting you uh, tooth and nail in an auction league or trying to trump you in a in a draft on him as well. Despite, you know, an underwhelming performance this year. Injury marred, only 404 plate appearances in 101 games, 262, 324, 399. I think the last of that triple slash is the most surprising for Soler. We saw that glimpse of big power in 2014. It's been prevalent throughout his minor leagues. Just kind of a tough season, uh, but turning it around here a little bit late in the in the postseason. Monster LDS against the Cards, 571, 769, 1571. That's his triple slash, folks, for a uh, 2341 OPS. I think that's good. <laughs> but that's, you know, four for seven. Again, tiny, tiny samples, but showing the explosion that we're kind of used to uh, or, or, or that, we're ex- ex- we, that we expect from him. We're not used to seeing yet because he hasn't done anything long enough to be used to anything. Going to be 24 next year. Take some time to gush on Jorge Soler and tell us why we should be we should still be so excited even after uh, again a bit of a dismal season against expectations. Yeah, I mean, the did you see the way that he took those at bats in the postseason? I did. That's, you know, it's not just it is a tiny step. It was seven play appearances, but the way that he took those at bats that is. That is the potential. That is that is where he he can do that. Like he came up in the in the minor leagues and he was you know hitting the snot out of the ball and they said we want to see some more patience. So in one year uh, from A ball to double A, in one year he went from a nine percent walk rate and sixteen percent strikeout rate to a fifteen percent walk rate and a nineteen percent strikeout rate, and he kept that that inflated walk rate into AAA. So he was like, hey, guys, I can do whatever you need me to do. I can walk. I can you know, hit for contact. I can hit for power. I can play defense. Tell me how to get to the big leagues. Like, I think he's got a good head on his shoulders. You didn't hear him complain when he uh, got, got uh, made into a platoon player late this season where he's only facing lefties. Uh, you know, you didn't hear a lot of, like, the, Javier Baez has, you know, a a crazy head on his shoulder. I mean, that guy's nuts. Uh, Jorge Soler is not nuts. He's a he's a hardworking, great young man who has shown the ability to make changes in the past. Has an up the middle approach. Ha- has the body of Adonis. You know, can can hit the snot out of the ball, like literally hit the cover off the ball. Uh, can hit line drive homers to any field. I mean, there's. There's just no way it's not going to work out. Like, if it doesn't work out, I quit. <laughs> you know, the, this is the moment where I just realized I'm not going to get him in any league against you. That was so glowing and so magical. I have a small tear in my eye. I, 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 I do wonder how much I can spend on him because he hasn't yet. Like, I really thought he was going to hit, like, 25 homers this year at least. And even if you gave me 400 floor plate appearances, I would have I would have given him 20 homers. So... 
Um, you know, it was not a great season. The strikeout rate was bad. Uh, there is a little bit more swing and miss into his game than I thought, I guess. Uh, I knew there was a little bit, but I thought, you know, I wouldn't have expected that part of this game. The walk rate wasn't there. But, of course, he also said, you know, I'm feeling confident now. And so there was a little bit of confidence issue. There was definitely a health issue with the ankle. Um, so it was a lot of, uh, I think, just an adjustment period. I just, I just really think he's going he's gonna to blow up this year um, in, in the coming year. So I don't – it's very it's – very, it's, a, it's a raw place to be because I spent $10 on him in mixed leagues this year and um, felt there was no way I wasn't going to get the return on my value. So what do I do next year? You know, well, here, here's the thing. It, it, like I, I won't spend ten dollars again, but I know that I'm here talking, and people are listening to me, and so they'll go to ten dollars with me again. That's true, but some the, the the fantasy community with prospects they're so fickle, and if they don't perform right away, the fantasy community can be harsh, and yeah. and they might. There's, <laughs> what's that? I'll have him in those leagues. <laughs> yeah, because there's going to be a sect of people that are just like, nope, that guy didn't perform. He's an overhyped prospect. No, thank you. Let me move back on to my mid-20s, 20-year-old guys. And that, I, I, That's fine. I get that. There's a lot of risk with, with these guys. But I still think uh, more more to the point, there's going to be leagues where, yeah, people are going to jump, going to start him at 10. So if you're not ready to budge off of that, uh, you're not even getting in on the second bid with with Solaire. So he's going to be another one of those fascinating ones. If he continues to deliver, you know, he doesn't even have to be anywhere near the clip that he's on right now. You said seven plate appearances. You meant seven at-bats, 13 plate appearances because he also has six walks. So if he stays out of his mind for the LCS and then they go into the World Series and he keeps doing it, that's only going to really boost up the price. I assume he'll come back down to kind of a normal level. Uh, even if it's kind of a normal star level, you know, something in the 900s or 1,000 OPS. It's also and, very interesting to see how much they play him, right? It's exactly. Like, um, if he does have these kind of numbers but he plays in every other game, uh, people will be very worried that he's a platoon player going into next year. I mean, there's a natural sort of platoon there with Coughlin, uh, as crazy as that sounds, uh, and as, as, as much as it makes my skin crawl to say it, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Huge you know, season for, for Coughlin. I mean, that that was nuts. He ended up Coughlin, having really good. Coughlin, I gotta say his name right. Coughlin. Coughlin. Why is it not Coughlin? I don't know because no I, I would have thought that I would have thought that it was too when he came up, but then no, we were we were told to pronounce the G. So who knows? But no, I, I share your I share your enthusiasm on Solari. Going to be another one that I'm extremely fascinated with. I really think it's going to be one of those. He's going to be one of those players where league to league it could vary wildly. You're going to see stories. You and I are going to be retweeting guys who say, "Oh my God, I got him in the." 14th round it was crazy i got him for seven dollars in my mixed league some you know crazy stuff like that then there's going to be other things on the other side oh my god i can't believe i just paid 28 dollars for jorge soler i got in a crazy <laughs> yeah. bidding war what did i just do to myself and then that's going to be i was in on i was in on gong going into the season right i mean you know i was all over gong because dan farnsworth our new prospect analysis and analyst lead prospect analyst uh he said that you know Gong's power is going to translate, and I I looked at that swing analysis and I said, yeah, you're right. That does look a nice like a nice swing. I was in on Gong. I have you know three or four uh, or five really cheap uh, shares of Gong, right? I also have a seventeen dollar share of Gong. <laughs> <laughs> One where you refused to be pushed off. Yeah, like uh, that one went a little bit far, and even as it was happening, I was like, stop it, stop it. What do oh, you? I've been stop. there. 
Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? Don't say one more. 18. Oh, yeah. Why did I, yeah, do, right. that? Why did I do that? Yeah. There's, there's going to be some of those Solaire bids out there this year. And, and frankly, I'll be, I'll be part of at least one of them. I know that I'll be stubborn in one league and, and, and end up paying some upper teens, low twenties just to get them. But uh, this could be the, the, the year, though, too. That's the thing. He, he can jump. Solaire can jump from like a 96 WRC plus to a full season of 130. That's in the cards. And I like to gamble on things like that, even though the probability of, of a full season of 130 WRC plus isn't all that high. All right, you know, now we're going to jump into the uh, both ACL, uh, excuse me, both LCS series, ALCS tonight and LCS tomorrow. We're going to talk game one starters. We're going to talk strengths and weaknesses of the pitchers going. We're each going to take one side and kind of talk about how those strengths and weaknesses fit to the team that they're actually playing. So maybe the folks that are kind of viewing the games can can have some usefulness to where uh, they can look for certain things when they're watching the game. So I'm going to let you start. You got Volquez. You got both home guys. You got Volquez. And Harvey, we're going to start with Estrada at Volquez. Talk to us about. Uh, I, I went with a talk to us about, <laughs> but I, I. It is kind of an open floor. I'm not. Ask, I'm not interested necessarily in direct questions that I have because you did your own research on Volquez. So definitely, uh, give us the scouting report on him. What works? What doesn't work? And how's it going to apply to this Toronto team? Obviously, it's going to be a ridiculously tough opponent. Does he stand a chance against them? Well, an interesting thing is that the Blue Jays don't reach they're the second least reaching team in in the bigs um so they have a really good sense of the strike zone and so you'd think that would be something that would work against uh edison volquez because the the idea that you have in your head is that he's wild uh and he needs people to to reach on what he's doing but um you know in the last three years and i think the pirates did this uh he's gone more to a sinker than his four seam uh, and I think that that, along with having better framers, has been the big genesis of his improvement in command. And if you look at his reach rates, they're actually below average the last three years. So he does not actually depend on sizzling stuff outside the zone and reaches in order to do what he does. Uh, in fact, he's a little bit more conventional than people think. Uh, he's a sinker baller, you know, that gets a decent amount of ground balls and doesn't strike out a lot of guys. And with these new walk rates, you know, with these new walk rates that he's had, is just a decent pitcher. But he's he's not very he's not very good. And um, I think the fact that uh, you know he does have a good curve and a good change and a good sinker. But uh, the Blue Jays are good against every pitch, and they're actually above average league average against every pitch and by pitch type values. So. There's uh, there's no weakness. The only thing you can say you see is that Josh Donaldson isn't as good against curves as against as he is against everything else. Um, you know, maybe Volquez will throw him a couple changeups. What I'm saying is the Blue Jays are going to probably tattoo Volquez, but it won't necessarily be because he's um, wild and because they're uh, because they don't swing at bad pitches because they don't swing at, at pitches outside the zone. I think it'll just be because. They tattoo every sort of pitch, and none of Volquez's pitches are standout elite-type pitches. All right, that's great analysis on Volquez. I kind of understand it in terms of there might not be much he can do. You know, you said he's he's an okay, good, not great pitcher. He's facing a great lineup, so he, he's going to have trouble. On the other side, 
for Estrada, I don't think it's it's quite as dire, but he could also run into some trouble. He's mostly fastball changeup, doesn't have a platoon split either this year or, or for his career. So the fact that you know some of the best pitcher, or excuse me, some of the best hitters for KC are lefties isn't necessarily any scarier uh, for Estrada because of that platoon split factor. The fastball does get great results. His OPS was actually the same um, as Max Scherzer's on his fastball, but. He has an average strikeout rate, below average walk rate, and the monstrous home run rate that definitely leave him susceptible. And kind of starting since last year's playoffs, this KC team isn't just a punch and Judy team anymore. They've got pop. They're second to Toronto in OPS against right-handed fastballs. Morales, Hosmer, Perez, Gordon, they all rake against right-handed fastballs. Moustakis, Kane, Rios, and Zobris are all strong. And so that's like an 800 or better OPS, whereas the guys who rake are 900 or better OPS. So he could be in some big trouble being so fastball-dependent, fastball changeup. The changeup could be his key, though. None of the Kansas City regulars – uh, have have any really good numbers against right-handed changeups? Hosmer and Moose are are the, are the best, and they're at 789 and 799 with their OPS respectively, uh, respective respectively. Excuse me. So that could be something that he could go to, maybe get away from the fastball, keep them off balance. That's going to be one of his best bets. Uh, even better option might be to amplify his usage with the curveball. It's been declining in usage every year since 2010, down to just 11 percent this year, but it's kind of one of those things that you use sporadically to kind of get the best results, 589 OPS and 60 plate appearances. And KC does not hit right-handed curveballs. Hosmer and Kane are the only regulars with a, uh, a 536 OPS or better. Those are going to be small samples, particularly against the curveball. The fastball samples are much bigger, going to be more reliable. But even still, dating back to 2013, uh, Hosmer's the only team, uh, only person on the team uh, at 625 or better with his OPS against right-handed curveballs. So this is a long-term issue for them. I think Estrada, that's going to be his best bet, is really mixing in both the curveball, I think, uh, specifically, and the changeup more often. His key batters are going to be Hosmer, Hosmer Morales, and Moose, the, the heart of the order, as you would expect. Sometimes that's not the case. This is a little bit more straightforward. So I think both guys are going to be in for some potential trouble. This could be one of the higher-scoring playoff games that we saw um, I'm just nervous about uh, about Estrada. I know he's been getting it done all year, but I don't fully believe in it. What do you think yeah, about Estrada? This is something interesting that Estrada does better than almost anybody in the big leagues. He has a pitch that the changeup has the best in-zone whiff rate of any pitch. So uh, basically, once he gets you to swing on that changeup in the zone, you're going to miss it half the time. I didn't. I, I, I didn't get that. In my research. I should have given you Estrada. You're coming no, up with a better tip. No, that, that one just came up because I've been I've been looking at in zone whiff rates and stuff, and it's not really something you'll see on any site. Uh, but it is important. I think it is important to me. I might do some research on it this offseason because uh, you know Zach Greinke was was uh, was most obsessed with having hitters uh, take his strikes and 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 swing at his balls. But uh, and not swing at its ball. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm a five-year-old, but that was amazing. But but imagine if you had a pitch where it almost didn't matter. The, you know, you could either get them to miss it half the time when they did swing, and if they didn't swing, it's a called strike. You know, that would be the perfect pitch. You know, the pitch that you could just throw in the zone and be like, "Ha, good luck." So um, 
I think basically he's got that straight change. It, it, it's not that it's so amazing by itself. He couldn't throw it 100% of the time and have people miss it. You know, it, it does rely on the fastball. He has to throw the fastball enough that they think that's the fastball in the zone. But his deception is so good on that just that fastball and change alone that, you know, even in the zone when they swing at that thing, they don't make contact. So I think, uh, yeah, the fastball change is a good thing. I think what you're t- saying is right is that um, – Sometimes it makes sense in the playoffs to take a pitch where the scouting reports say he doesn't use the curve that much uh, to take that pitch and then use it in counts where they're like, oh, this is when he's going to come with a changeup, you know, and then, you know, drop that curveball on them. Agreed. And get some called strikes, you know, where they're like, oh, curveball, I'm not swinging. Oh, crud. Yeah, spit on it entirely. He drops it right in the zone. I, yeah. I think that's going to be something that can really help Estrada here, uh, in addition, of course, to the change. But like like we said at the outset, he has to not get murdered on the fastball. That's that's obviously been the yeah. key for him all year, and he hasn't been. So credit to Estrada on that. He hasn't been getting beaten with the fastball, which is allowing him to get to the changeup and curve. Let's see if the uh, with, let's see if the KC lineup allows that tonight. Let's jump over to the NLCS, Lester versus Harvey. Again, we'll start with you and Matt Harvey. What is his, what, what does the scouting report look like on, uh, on him, and how does it suit the Cubs, uh, for better or worse? Uh, I, I think that the, the, the key to this is actually not anything fancy that we – that you know, the kind of – the fancy stats that us nerds on this podcast <laughs> use. Uh, I, think, uh, I think this is a bad matchup for the Cubs because uh, Matt Harvey is one of the best in inducing swinging strikes and striking batters out, and the Cubs are the have the second or the, the worst strikeout rate in the majors this year. So, uh, you know, I think that that just it's a, it's a bad mix for them in that in that sense because they're just you know they're not. Um, let me see, it's a full season split. Yeah, the Cubs struck out two percent more than the Astros, and everybody talks about the Astros striking out. So. I think that you're going to see a ton of strikeouts, and I think the Cubs are just going to hope that the one like piece of contact they do make is a home run, you know. Um, which honestly, with Harvey, you know, sometimes the command isn't always there. He had the worst home run rate of his career this year, and I think that's related to command coming off Tommy John, and um, you know what I mean. Like I think he, he missed a couple spots with his four seamers, and totally agree. And, fastballs and, and and that's that led to home runs uh, a couple more home runs than you expect uh, given his dominance but uh you know and he did he did kind of struggle a little bit for Matt Harvey the last time out and people are going to be talking about how tired he is and blah 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 but um you know in terms of velocity and stuff it didn't really uh it, it didn't really um manifest itself how you'd think you know I think uh I think he's 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 pretty much 80% Matt Harvey at this point, which is better than 80% of the league, 90% of the league. And in particular is a bad matchup for these, uh, for these Cubs. Yeah. I don't think it's too crazy with, with John Lester either. Of course, we're talking about frontliners with both of these guys, whereas Estrada and, and Volk has are more mid rotation back end guys. So that it, we do have to get a little deeper that that makes sense that we're both kind of saying, well, there's not much trickery here. Matt They're going to good. Yeah. <laughs> John Lester, awesome. Matt Harvey, awesome. Both teams are going to have a challenge. We know that. Um, Lester, another guy who you know kind of leans on two pitches similar to, to Estrada, but obviously is much better at doing so. Fastball, cutter, uh, per, per our percentages. And again, it's, with, with, with those two pitches specifically, 
it can be kind of like three, four different variations of the two. You can be sinking it, cutting it, get a little rise to it, a little bit of a straighter fastball. So even though it, it's only two classifications, I, I think when I watch Lester, I'm seeing him do a lot more different things with it. And then, of course, has the big hook that uh, you know doesn't over overly lean on, kind of sits in that 15 to 18% range uh, and 15% this year, 15% for his career. That's going to be the key for him too, though. We know that the two foundational pitches, they're going to be there. I think the curveball is where he can really have that transcendent outing uh, if he's going to be uh, somebody who's going eight innings for the Cubs tonight. Mets can't do anything with lefty curveballs. Obviously, they have a lot of lefties in their lineup. Uh, Duda, Granderson, neither of them do anything with it. And it only I think it was only two or three starts this year, but Lester – Went to the curveball more often against the Mets, 18% compared to that 15% that we saw in season. Granted, small sample, but still dominated them with it. 0 for 10 with one walk. So I think that's something that he's going to be looking at. Again, trying to stay out of trouble with the fastball. So it is a similar setup to Estrada, but again, on a higher level. We're not as worried about Lester's fastball getting beaten as we are Estrada's, but at the same time, the Mets do excel against left-handed fastballs. Duda, Darnold, Wright, Cespedes, Flores, all of them had exemplary performance against left-handed fastballs. So you will have to stay out of trouble with it, but uh, I think the curveball could be the put away. And if we are going to see some devastating double digit strikeout kind of game out of Lester, it's going to come via the curve, at least as, as far as I can tell. Yeah. You know who I see when I watch John Lester is Madison Bumgarner, actually. Uh, that, I think that that guy's pretty good too, by the way. Yeah. I think this, uh, you know, Bumgarner's younger. So he's a couple more ticks on the fastball. Uh, than Lester. But if you look at it, I think that they're very similar in that they don't have a changeup. They kind of do cutter, you know, cutter uh, curve. And I think that everything looks the same until it doesn't. And um, I think that's the I think that's the, the glory of, of, of Lester. And I think what you're I think you're right. And I think both of them, I think Bumgarner and Lester both do this where um, they, you know, They'll they'll tweak a pitch in the game if it's you know I think that the, the cutter can be more of a slider and more of a cutter and exactly. it has to do with how people are looking how people are swinging at their their pitches and I think they're very good uh, pitchers I know that some people don't have respect for Lester's stuff but I think part of it is when you look at when you watch them um, sometimes you think he has you know two breaking balls and one's really a fastball and you know nothing really has great swinging strike numbers. And, you know, you know, he's not that good. Like, it, it doesn't look that good. But it, it's one of those, I think it's one of those tunneling things. It's one of those um, uh, release point things where I think they, their release points are tighter than most people's. Uh, they might have elite uh, clusters on their release points even. And um, they, their pitches look very similar until, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty far apart at the end. So Yeah, like you said, until they don't. I think that's a great point. Uh, maybe we, we tend to fawn more over guys who have, you know, the five real unique uh, pitch classifications in their arsenal. They have a 12 to 6. They have a, a devastating slider and then a, a cutter that is, you know, noticeably different four miles tighter uh, or higher or something like that. And then a fastball and a sinker and a changeup, something like that. We get more excited about Lester again, feels like he, he doesn't have that many pitches, 
But again, on any given night, I think he is utilizing those two main pitches, classified as fastball and cutter, and doing so many different things with them that he does get underrated from a stuff standpoint. I think that's a tremendous point on your part. Um, even with even having kind of the devastating curve to go with it, he still gets underrated in that aspect. And uh, yeah, I think Lester could be in for, for a great outing. That matchup, I'm really excited about that matchup. Um, I think there was something on Terry Collins commenting today that they aren't going to just try to turn into a running team all of a sudden because of Lester's uh, woes with base runners. <laughs> How much of a factor do you think that'll play into I, I I wouldn't have expected Terry Collins to come out and say, yeah, we're going to run like crazy on them. So I, I'm not really going to put any stock in that one way or the other. From your assessment, this is not a team that runs at all the Mets. In fact, they were dead last in the National they League. They don't with- have the personnel. And- okay, so you don't think it's going to be a factor. I mean, maybe like, maybe they play Ligaris since it's a lefty that they're up against. Maybe they play Ligaris and... Um, over Conforto and then Cespedes over to left. Yeah. And then they get more defense behind Harvey. Uh, they get their only real speed guy into the lineup, even though Lagares never really took advantage of it. At least he's fast um, and, you know, could take a, a bit of a running start, you know. Um, sure. So I think uh, I think that that might be an argument for Lagares. I mean, we're talking about the ace type game, right, where we're thinking it's going to be 2-1 or 3-2. And, um, you know, having Lagares in there, even with his kind of down year in defense, I think, you know, still I think, better than Cespedes in center. Yeah, better than Cespedes, yeah. yeah so I, I hear you uh, on that. Conforto against the lefty. I mean, I think it's almost a no brainer to put Lagares in there, honestly. And, um, you know, we'll have to see how it goes. But uh, other than that, and maybe a Lagares stolen base, it, you know, it, it, it could be a big deal. To put Lagares in, and he gets a stolen base, and he turns into the run, and it's one nothing game. I mean, that's that's the kind of game it could end up being. That's funny. You know, I was going to make a prediction tied to that, and I'm going to say that Daniel Murphy is going to be the one with a key stolen base or two. I'm willing to say that he might steal twice against John Lester, uh-huh. a couple of, and, and match his in-season <laughs> total. Matt's going to get killed for not signing Murphy because. He's going to win, like, MVPs of two yes. series with, like, stolen bases and home runs and, like, a 400 batting average in the postseason. <laughs> and, like, a killer defensive play, obviously something he's not known for. He's going to make some diving yeah. game saver in the seventh inning of one of these games. You're so right. And then they're going to be like, dude, forget Cespedes. We got to get Murphy on that $130 million deal. Come on. 28. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, I, I again, though, that's the playoffs. It, it, it's uh, – uh, Silly prediction, I understand, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit if somebody like a Murphy who's shown some speed in the past. It, obviously, we saw it yesterday. Wasn't he the one who took advantage and, and, and basically swiped third? Was that was that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, it's, he's got some head on his, you know, he's stolen 10 or 15 in a year before. And he's so got it's a, not even a gutsy so. call. It's just who I think it, it would would be willing to do it. Um, and, and could maybe catch the team off guard, especially if they're stuck in this year's scouting report that says, no, nah, he was two for four, he's not going to run. Boom, all of a sudden he runs. I think that matchup's going to be great. I think the one tonight is going to be great for a different reason, just because we could see fireworks uh, with the offense. But I'm very excited. I am going to ask you for a prediction as we go out, though. Who's, who's meeting in the World Series in your estimation? I said it was going to be uh, uh, R.A. Dickey World Series, R.A. Dickey Trade World Series. So I'm going to stick with Blue Jays-Mets. That's awesome. Um, I would love for that to be it's right. A, it's a homer pick, but uh, who cares? I'm fine with it. I'm totally fine with it. I, I've had Jays all the way. Um, 
yeah, st sticking with that, I actually thought the Dodgers, I, I didn't want them to win. I, I was pulling for the Mets. I want the Mets to, to succeed, but I actually thought the Dodgers were kind of under the radar. They might rise up and, and, and run it. Obviously, that's not the case. So, LGM, man, let's go Mets. Uh, I'll go with, I'll go with the same predictions because I, I want to see it. And and who cares if I'm wrong? It's it's a it's a World Series prediction. It's not it, you know there's nothing riding on it. I'm just gonna go with what I want to see. Plus, I think honestly, I I don't think that there's such a disparity in talent on uh, in either series that uh, that you should feel too strongly one way about any sort of prediction. And you just kind of go with with maybe your gut about what you want to see because you know if somebody says Cubs Royals can you really mount a defense that they're ridiculous and they shouldn't be predicting that I don't think we can I think these are pretty evenly matched championship series would you agree yeah yeah I think they're gonna be really fun and also like a little bit difference in styles that make it fun that um you know everybody wanted the Cubs and the Mets to make a big trade that for arm and uh instead of doing that they just did what they do and 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 managed to Find their bats and find their uh, find their bats and find their uh, find, find their, their arms. Yeah, and, they, and yeah, then they just, both got to this spot. And now and now we're gonna see. I think you know Arietta's great um, and Lester's good, but um, you know I'd still give uh, the actually you know it's 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 a lot closer now because I think Thor's not pitching game two uh, because he pitched in, in the in the game five. So. Um, the, it's going to be closer now because if you're talking, um, you know, Harvey, Cologne, Mats, Thor, or, you know, or, 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 or DeGrom, Mats, or something like that, you know, it opens the door up for an, a, a game pitched by a lesser than, uh, than an elite, uh, pitcher as much as I like Cologne. And, uh, that opens the door for a, a, a bashing, uh, for the Cubs. So, um, I, I think this will be a, a, a closely played series. I think it'll go far. I think that they're the, the biggest separation runs will be two or three and it'll be like three to one, five, two, three, you know, three, two kind of games. I think yeah. it'll be a fun. I, I think we're going to continue on the other side though. I think, uh, we could see some crazy games where it's, uh, they each blow each other out. Yes. And, uh, we because could of see the pitch seven ones and yeah, and, and it's going to be whoever's pitching shows up that day. Uh, they win the game, and uh, you know. Otherwise, it's uh, you know the 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 hitting will you know there will be some scoring in that game in that series. I also hope that you know you talk about high scoring. There could be a blowout on each side. I also hope we get that slugfest, that uh, that ten to nine, that eight to seven game. Those are fun too. Where at, at some point in the game, each team kind of looks looks out of it. You know, KC goes up four nothing, and then Toronto yeah. is up. Eight to four, they stormed all the way back, and now they've got this on lock. And then, and then Casey yeah. makes it eight seven in the ninth or something well, like that. Crazy win probability graph yes. games. <laughs> I want to see. I, I like those two, obviously, in, in addition to the uh, super tight one zero two ones type of game as well. So it's been a great playoff. I think it's going to continue to be. We'll be back at some point next week. I'm not entirely sure uh, yet what Jason's schedule is in terms of Sunday, and then you and I will come up with something for next week as well. Maybe dive into uh, some more scouting reports as well. Let us know what you think of these. Again, just trying to give you some things to kind of look for as you're watching the games while also sprinkling in the fantasy stuff. Uh, as always, thanks for listening. Eno, I'll talk to you next week. All right, see ya.